Hello and welcome to another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. Right now, if you're in the UK at least, you're in your ninth week of lockdown. But there are some promising signs of some of those measures beginning to ease. But just as we're starting to meet our friends in the parks from a socially safe distance, there are ominous whispers in the background of an almost inevitable second wave on the way. All of this is quite confusing at best and, well, worrying at worst. So, since it's Mental Health Awareness Week, I've dropped in some relaxing sounds and talked to some of the people that are trying to get us back to normal by developing a vaccine. In our previous episode, we heard from Dr. Anna Blakeney, and she gave us a brilliant introduction to the type of vaccine being trialled for COVID-19, which has now started human trials. In fact, if you haven't heard episode 8, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to it before starting this. Now that human trials are progressing, I was keen to catch up with a group in Imperial who are now looking at the next big challenge. And that is looking at how we're going to make enough vaccine for the entire global population. Something that has never been attempted before in such a short period of time. I managed to speak to two of the team, Maria Papathanasio, a lecturer in the Department of Chemical Engineering, and Zoltan Kish, a research associate also in the Department of Chemical Engineering. Sultan began by giving me the latest on the Imperial vaccine efforts. When does he think they'll be ready to roll out a vaccine for everyone? Yeah, sure. So that's a very tricky question, as you can imagine. Exactly. It's, uh, it's, it's lots of unknowns, lots of uncertainties, and there's lots of companies working on this at the moment. So as of basically as of 15th of May, according to the World Health Organization, there were around eight vaccine candidates in a clinical trials, so being tested on humans, and over 110 vaccine candidates in preclinical trials. So there's lots of different approaches, lots of different technologies working on, um, you know, trying to get a COVID vaccine out as soon as possible. And this is actually happening at a very fast pace. This has been never uh, been seen before, but it's still, it feels that it's not fast enough sometimes for this pandemic. Yeah, so it's, in, in terms of timelines, it's, it's, it's very hard to give a, you know, like a, specific date or a time for it. Uh, most experts would say that it's probably going to be uh, end of this year or beginning of next year when we'll have a vaccine ready. The biggest challenge is doing the clinical trials. And then once that is done, the next huge challenge is how to make a lot of it and fast. So that's, uh, you know, so that can be distributed globally. And by a lot, we mean uh, over a billion doses and hopefully within a couple of months, which is actually unprecedented, this type of a production. So that's uh, very challenging. Yeah. And, and before we kind of get into the, the nit and grit on how you actually make a billion doses of a vaccine in the tightest of time frames, I just wanted to know, Zoltan, we hear, we hear a lot in the media about there being two vaccines in the UK, at least, Oxford and Imperial. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, so, so these actually are two very promising technologies that are... Uh, they're also very different from each other. Okay, so the Oxford uh, uh, vaccine is based on the adenovirus vector. So this is a technology that is uh, slightly more developed than the Imperial one. So then that means that trials can proceed a bit faster. However, the disadvantage of this technology is that it's, it's not as scalable as ours. It's gonna be hard to produce um, a lot of it fast enough for for global supply basically however the imperial one it's a newer technology 
it requires a bit more testing. So the testing phase takes longer, but once the testing is done, it's gonna be a lot easier to make a lot of it. So the imperial-based vaccine will be definitely be able to meet this billion dose challenge. And there have been some very exciting news from, from a company from the US uh, called Moderna. This news came a couple of days ago and they are using a very similar technology to ours. And this, according to this news, their vaccine was shown to be safe and it was shown to be working in a small number of humans. However, more testing is needed, but it's already quite promising. So we are hopeful that, you know, that our technology will be, uh, will pass the clinical trials and then we can mass produce it. Yeah. It's, it sounds like a very kind of an interesting headache to have if you're, uh, you know, if you're a government of a country, do you go for previous technology, but you know, you might be able to ramp, ramp it up as much, or do you go for the, the new kid on the block, which, which you can. And speaking of, of ramping up dosages, uh, Maria, if I could turn to you and assuming the, the Imperial or the Oxford vaccine is safe for humans, how do you actually go about making billions of dosages for the entire global population over the space of months, I guess? So I guess that meeting the demand right ahead is a very challenging task. And something that has been going around is that we won't only need one vaccine. So we might have a few successful candidates and we might be actually in need of using all of them at the same time. One of the greatest challenges we've got uh, that's actually keeping us back at the moment from meeting uh, the billion dose uh, demand is that the current vaccine manufacturing facilities cannot simply manufacture as much. And the very, very tight timeframes prevent us from investing in new facilities because that would require a lot of time to build them. So our best guess is Firstly, to find a very smart way to use what we currently have and be able to ramp up the manufacturing capacity with the existing assets. Something that is going a little bit beyond manufacturing, but it actually does help us to meet the demand, is to create groups of people that are at the moment at higher exposure risk or at higher health risk, for example, and vaccinate them first. And that might have to do with uh, health conditions of the, those people, frontline personnel at hospitals that, ha that have very, very high risk of exposure to the virus. So in order to be able to utilize what we have at, at our best capacity, we would be looking at vaccinating the high-risk groups first, if you like. Let's call them that way, high-risk groups first. And in that way, we would be able to um, kind of slow the spread of the virus and buy us time until we're able to vaccinate the world uh, at, at its entirety. And this is only us talking about the first uh, shot of the vaccine, right? There are talks, and there is no certainty in that, but there are talks at the moment that there may be a need for a second dose or a booster. We have seen this with other vaccines, right? Existing vaccines that we go to the doctor and we get a booster for the dose. So there, there is the case that we might have to do the same for this, uh, for this vaccine. And I'm saying that there is uncertainty because those vaccines are currently in trial. So this is one of the things that trials would actually underline, whether a single dose is enough or we have to go to multiple doses 
or how long does the immunity last, we might vaccinate high-risk groups, but certainly we're not done with these people. These people will be coming back at a certain period of time in the case that the second dose is needed. So that's good and bad news there, I guess, from Zoltana Maria. A vaccine could be available by the end of the year, good, but a very important point just made there by Maria, that there is a possibility that life might not return to exactly what we had before, not suddenly at any rate. On the theme of mental health, I was keen to know how they felt being at the heart of one of the most pressing scientific challenges in a generation. What are the stresses and how are they coping? Yes, yeah, sure. So there's, uh, so currently I'm working from home because I'm doing modeling into figuring out how to make a lot of vaccines, you know, fast at high quality and at low cost. But there's definitely a sense of urgency in this. And this field is like just so rapidly changing. There's always new developments happening. You have to keep up with all of these different players across the globe who are tackling this problem from different, you know, different points. There's a sense of, thing, of feeling responsible for, you know, for, for trying to do your best to overcome this. Regarding mental health, I think it's actually a big challenge. Um, well, not, 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 not in my case specifically, because I'm just uh, very busy and I'm just very involved. There's a lot going on. That can be a bit stressful at times, but I'm, I'm, I'm still coping with it quite well. And it just, I just feel excited more than stressed. And just, uh, you know, I, I look at the positive side and try to like, do my best to, to deliver the most, but I, I imagine that it can be stressful for others who are like probably their work is affected in some way. It, they, they don't work as normal because they work from home or they they might even like, you know, not not be working because there's less work now. I think to overcome these, there's two main things that I'm also doing normally. So one of them is giving like keeping human interactions. Just, I think it's still important to talk to people, keep some kind of a human interaction, that's one thing. And the other thing that I think helps me as well, just to do physical exercise, go out in the park or do exercise at home, that, that kind of keeps you physically active and also helps with, in my opinion, with mental health as well. So that's what I'm doing. And probably that could work for others as well in, a, in, a, in similar situations. Yeah, so actually you read my thought there. Um... Because as I was formulating my answer, I actually thought, well, hang on a second, it's, it's all cool and nice, but, well, <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> so uh, I will get back to your question on mental health, but first let me say that I agree with Zoltan. It's actually exciting to feel you can contribute. In my lifetime, and for certainly in my lifetime as a researcher, it's the first time I actually see that what I'm doing or what I'm capable of doing is needed that much. And that's, that adds a lot of um, uh, excitement, but it also adds a lot of pressure in a good way to do our best and be able to deliver something, even if it's small, something that can actually help the world battle this pandemic. And now going back to your question on mental health, um, I'm actually someone who occasionally experiences stress, <laughs> right? Not in an extreme way, so I don't suffer from it, but I can see why people encourage everyone to take breaks from work. So I have the luxury to have a home that is quiet. I can work. Uh, most of the times I have good internet connection. My work is computational, so it has not been interrupted. So I haven't been through the frustration. What am I doing now with my job? And 
I can actually tell you that there are a lot of people that their jobs have been massively interrupted. And I feel that that must be a huge frustration. I think it's imperative to try and keep in touch with some sort of a social life. Uh, humans are social by nature. So having, uh, you know, online coffee breaks, online drinks, or I had, I think in this period, three online birthday parties, which felt great. Um, I think that's important. And it's actually important for, for people who are not studying but are working to actually take annual leave. Even at home, there's so many things you can do uh, without you involving you working. Because uh, I personally don't find it healthy to dive into an infinite amount of work just because your laptop is there and is looking at you. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point that academics, of all the careers out there, I feel like academics find it hardest to, you know, separate work and leisure and i guess the current you know environment working at home maybe not having a life outside can reinforce that so that's that's really interesting to hear so so kieran if i just can add just a very brief point here because it's something i encounter very often um i have a lot of colleagues for example that have kids uh, female colleagues so i think it's very important here to stress that this situation should make us all more uh let's say, accepting of people working under different conditions. So I, I personally do not have kids, so I can devote normal working hours to my work and that's fine. I can host my meetings without anybody, you know, working around. But there are many female colleagues that do have children. And I think it's very important for the rest of us to make them feel that they can still participate in the meeting. It's okay if they send the email outside normal working hours because they have to take care of their kids given that schools, nurseries and so on are closed. So I think we should use, even if we haven't been affected, I guess my point is, we should use this time to try and think how we can make uh, the life of those affected easier. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, f I find myself thinking that you know there's a lot of things that I won't go back to when when life does does return to normal there are a lot of uh yeah like like what Sultan said in particular like you know going to the park taking time out and I'm sure that's even more the case if you have if you have kids just a slower pace of life a more considerate type of life I guess and yeah I just hope we don't forget that what in the in the hurry to go back to normal I think it sounds like you're both staying really positive and the excitement is still there. And um, I guess on that positive note, um, I think it's time for us to, and I think we could continue chatting for the rest of the day, but, but I don't want to take you away from the, from the important work. So thanks Sultan and Maria for, for coming on the podcast and best of luck in the future. Thank you, Kieran. We have joined it a lot and it was a new experience for me, which I think I... I like. I like it a lot, so I might do it again. Thanks a lot, Kieran. It was my pleasure being here, and I'm looking forward to more of this. And that was Maria Papathanasio and Zoltan Kish speaking there. That's your lot for another episode of Never Lick the Spoon. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe wherever you find us. And if you're feeling extra charitable in these times, why not leave us a good review? And all that's left for me to say is look after yourselves, take breaks, and always remember, never lick the spoon. <laughs>